Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of September 12th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. That morning I was in the dining room kitchen area of our home and I think if I remember correctly Ben wanted to watch a little TV. He was only three and a half years old. So he turned the TV on. And what I heard was not the normal kids' programming you might have heard for a a three-and-a-half-year-old. It was the news. It caught my attention. As I walked into the room, I saw the World Trade Center on fire. I imagine most of you, or all of you who are old enough to remember those events, know exactly what was going on that morning in your life. You know where you were when you heard it. You know what it was you witnessed. For those next hour, hour and a half, uh, just watched in horror as I saw the second plane hit the second tower. And a number of things are running through my mind, and I'm sure they were running through your mind that morning and that day. Even if you don't remember all the details of that day, you probably remember at least how you felt. The horror, the utter disbelief that you weren't watching a movie. Maybe anger. Just heartbroken, overwhelming sadness. The world seemed to stop for many of us that day for several days. And after the world stopped, it just completely changed. It's, it's, it's most, many of you in this room this morning don't know what it is to walk to an airport without being scans in five, five different ways, but back in the day, you just walked in the airport. And the truth is, that's just a, a, a small way in which our lives have been different since 9-11, 20 years ago this weekend. You know, when the world changes like that to events that we have no control of, our responses can be many, a number of different things. The truth is, even over the last couple of years, our world has changed quite a bit, hasn't it? Maybe not from just one event or one day to a few moments the way that happened 20 years ago, but our world looks now markedly different than it did in the last half of 2019. We've gone through a great deal of change again. And it's been interesting to see how people have reacted. It was much, people have reacted the last 18 months, much the way they reacted 20 years ago, sometimes with confusion. Sometimes with sadness, sometimes with fear, maybe even anger and panic. But as we remember the events of 20 years ago, or even look past, or even look back on the last six months, or the last 18 months, I want us to see not the world in its chaos and in its confusion, but I want us to see God. We're in Acts chapter 20. We have been in Acts now for some time. As we come to Acts 20, let me remind you, by the way, as as our slide says, we're in Acts 20, we are looking at this book as the continuing and ongoing works of Christ. Christ's work didn't end 2,000 years ago. It continues today. The stories we read about in Acts are not just stories of a people we've never heard of or will never understand. They are the stories of our church. And they are as ours as, as they were 2,000 years ago because the people who were involved in these, in these accounts and acts, 
They are the ones that God used to bring you and I here this morning. So as we come to Acts chapter 20, we're going to begin reading in verse 13. And we're going to see Paul share some really dear things to his heart as he says goodbye to his friends at Ephesus. Acts 20 verse 13. Luke is part of this, so he uses the term we. He says, but we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Ephesus, intending from there to take Paul on board, for so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met at Ephesus, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we had crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he'd sent, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know, from the first day of the, that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews." How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, beyond, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Heavenly Father, as we read your word this morning, as we read these words of Paul, would you take these truths from your word and imprint them upon our minds and our hearts and solidify us in the anchor that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to our passage this morning, lots of things have changed for Paul. In the last few years of Paul's life and the events before Acts 20, he has been run out of multiple communities. He's been falsely accused of crimes. He's been beaten. He's been jailed. He's had a plot against his life. And he has planted numerous churches and seen number, numerous people come to know the Lord. He's made new friends and he's lost others. And yet, as Paul begins his Journey back to Jerusalem, and by the way, this will be, in fact, his last visit to Asia. It will be his last visit to the cities along that what is now the Turkish coast of Asia Minor. He has some final words to say that we're going to be exploring over the next couple of weeks. And this morning, he, after making his way to, this, to the town of Miletus, has called the elders, the leaders of the church at Ephesus. He didn't want to go to Ephesus itself because he knew that would be, end up being a longer visit than what he had time for. So he sails to a town about 20 miles south of Ephesus and calls the leaders of the church to share with them his final words before he heads away. And at the core of this passage, 
at the core of all the unrest that Paul has seen, at the core of all the things he's dealt with, at the core of all the change he's had to live through, of all the confusion perhaps, things that would uh, waylay a lot of us, he points to something that is the anchor of all that else that he does. And we're going to begin there, and it's in verses 20 and 21. And he says this, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And he goes on to tell us what that was. Testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The last 20 years, the last 20 months, have for many of us been a constant state of change and stress. We've not been able to do perhaps the things we want to do, or at least not do them in the way we want to do them. We've gotten angry, we've gotten confused, perhaps we've even gotten afraid from time to time. We've worried about this, we've worried about that, and people have gotten angry at one another. And, and all this happened in the last 18 months. All that sometimes happens with the change in our life. Let's face it, life changes. Sometimes it's good change, sometimes it's bad change, sometimes it's just indifferent. It's just kind of change. All those things happen, and we find ourselves focused so much on those things that we forget those things, and we forget the one who never changes. And what Paul has done, what he's calling their attention to is this. In all the years you've known me, in all the things that have taken place, in all the things that we've said and talked about, in all the, the riots, and they had riots there in Ephesus about the gospel, and all these things that have happened, the one thing that has not changed is this, that he's calling all he meets to repentance toward God and faith in Christ. The gospel and God himself does not change. God himself is the same God who uttered the creation of the universe into existence. He's the same God who, having made his plans from before the foundations of the earth were even laid down, had put into motion and a plan creation and even our salvation. He created knowing that we would sin. He created knowing that Christ was going to be sent and die for our sins and be resurrected and would be there to redeem us and that there would one day be a new heaven and new earth that would fulfill his plans and would glorify and magnify the Lord. These things had been set in place for eternity. And the gospel has been part of that. And as Paul deals with all these different things he's ever had to deal with, even as we think to 9-11 or as we think to COVID from the last year and a half, we need to find ourselves not so much worried about the things that are changing and find ourselves anchored to that which is never changing, that is God himself and the gospel. Paul says, I called you to faith in Christ and repentance toward God. Here's how this works. When God shares himself with us in the gospel, when we come across the truth of who we are and who Christ is, when we find ourselves face to face with the God who does all this, there's no way we can't help but be somewhat overwhelmed by our own sin and even shame. Isaiah in chapter 6 of his book in the Old Testament, when he comes in his vision into a heavenly encounter with with who God is, and he sees the majesty and the righteousness and the eternal nature of who God is and how he's something other, completely different than who Isaiah is. Isaiah finds himself literally, he says, coming undone. He's falling apart. It's overwhelming him. He feels like he's going to cease to exist, and the seams are coming apart. When he comes face to face with God, 
it overwhelms him. And yet that passage does not end without God himself sending one to Isaiah who will purge him and purify him and prepare him to be in the presence of God. When we encounter God, we will do what every person in Scripture who has ever met God does. We will find ourselves overwhelmed by His majesty, His glory, His righteousness, His holiness, and we will see in that that we don't belong in His presence. Now, I don't say that to make us feel bad about ourselves. I don't make that to make us look depressed or feel depressed this morning. I don't say that to try to bang you upside the head with how bad we are. That's not the point. The point is not us. The point is Him. We have to stop even looking at our, we look, stop looking at ourselves and look at who He is. Paul says, "The message I have preached to you in the middle of all this has been repentance towards God and faith in Christ. We need to encounter the risen Christ. And when we do, we'll see that in fact, we are deserving of every, perhaps, act of judgment and wrath God has in store when we see who He really is. If we ever doubt, by the way, that we are deserving of judgment, that's only said when you haven't encountered who God is. When you encounter God, all that flies away. And you realize how different He is than us. But when we encounter the gospel, yes, we encounter our failure as well. But our failure is replaced by Christ's victory. Well, speaking even this week with someone, we're talking about sin and even the word shame. And shame is a word we don't like to use much. It's, it's a word that feels bad. We talk about the gospel. We know perhaps you've heard it talked about. We've talked about it here, how in the gospel, Jesus Christ on that cross endured for us on our behalf as a substitute all that we deserved, the, the, the death the bloodshed, the pain, the separation from God. He endured that even though it was, it was ours that we had earned it. He did that on our behalf. And because of that, once we have placed our faith in Christ, then what God has done is declared our penalty for sin done away with. It's kind of a legal term. And now we are declared to be not guilty because our price has been paid by another. But the gospel goes beyond even that. The Bible says repeatedly that not only is our sin paid for, but that our shame is removed. That is, it's not just, it's not just that God, through Christ, took away the penalty of our sin and gave us eternal life. It's that He also takes away our embarrassment, our shame, that feeling like, oh, I'm such a failure. And the truth is, that hangs around with us a lot longer than the other stuff does, doesn't it? The truth is, when you mess up, when you've had one of those moments when you just said the wrong thing at the wrong time, or you just made a royal mess, it's not just getting the mess cleaned up. It's that you feel embarrassed and ashamed for a while. And what God says is this, I not only have removed the penalty of your sin and given you eternal life through Christ, but I will also, he says, remove your shame, remove your embarrassment. This is what God does for us. This is what the gospel does. And when I encounter the gospel, I'm not focused on my shame anymore. I'm not focused on my death anymore. I'm focused on the one who took it away. So that when I encounter all the things going on in this world around me, I'm not 
confused or angered or panicked by those things. I am anchored to this, that the God who created me, who loves me, also through Christ forgave me and removed not just my sin and penalties, but my shame. Paul knows all this. After all, who is Paul? Paul's a man who made his name by persecuting and going after and trying to kill those who follow Christ. You don't think Paul dealt with that a little bit in the back of his mind from time to time? Of course he did. And yet when Paul speaks about training in his righteousness for the righteousness of Christ in Philippians chapters 2 and 3, he says that as someone who knows what it is to trade in all that he had and to receive all that God has and to have not just the penalty removed, but the shame removed. It's hard to be bold when you're embarrassed, isn't it? The first time, I don't know if I've told the story here or not, the first time in my life, and there's been a lot of them, that I can remember being embarrassed. And again, that's a long list. And I got started young. T-ball. How, how old are kids when they play T-ball? You know, five, six. They put me at catcher in T-ball. Now that's, you know, not a, not a big thing because in T-ball, you know, there's not a whole lot going on at home plate. But leave it to me to figure out a way to embarrass myself at catcher in T-ball. Somehow the ball got hit out of the, outfield, out of the infield. The ball is being thrown in. There's actually a guy on the other team, another five-year-old, paying attention to his third base coach enough to run to home plate. Now, if you watch T-ball, you know that's a big deal. I've been a third base coach at T-ball. I've been there on the base pass trying to get the kid to pay attention to me and not just run in some random direction. I've been there, I've done that. This kid actually paid attention to his coach round the third base, and was coming home. And so I have, at this point, the job as a catcher is to do what? Catch the ball, and then do what? Tag the runner. I was so proud of myself, I actually caught a ball. That ball came into my glove, I caught it, and then I stood on home plate. Proud as you can be. Because if I stood on home plate, I thought that meant that the runner would be out. Because that's what happens at first base, right? I had the ball in my glove. I'm standing there, proud as a peacock. This kid runs up, tags the home plate, walks to the dugout, and they say he's safe, and I'm confused, and everyone's laughing, and I am embarrassed. I've shared my pain. I hope you're right. Now, that's a silly example. I get that. God removes our shame. And Paul knows what that means. He knows firsthand what it means to be forgiven. And when, you, when you've had, you know, after that event, and my trash talking or being a bold baseball player after that event the rest of that season, by the way, we went 0-11 that year. Shocker, I don't think I played catcher again. It's hard to be bold when you've been embarrassed when you're ashamed. But Paul knows that it is to be, have that removed from him through the gospel. So our sinfulness leads to repentance. Our repentance leads to God's love, which leads to faith and to the removal of our sin and our shame. And because of all that, because of these things, because of repentance towards God and faith in Christ, Paul has an anchor to take him through everything. 
And so because of that, now I want to go back up to how he describes his ministry there. He tells the people, he tells these leaders in Ephesus. He's called these elders. And we're going to talk about this next week, by the way. We're going to be in this passage for a couple weeks. You know, so he called the elders. And that's a word, again, we're going to talk about that more next week. But these are the leaders of the church. These are what we might call pastors today. And every time Paul appoints elders in the churches in, there in, in the early days, he always appoints a, multiple, a multiplicity of them. He calls the church leaders to himself and tells them this, you know who I was when I've been with you, and you know that I serve the Lord with all humility. He describes his ministry to them in Ephesus as serving the Lord. Paul did many things. He, he planted churches. He did mission work. He preached. He taught. He, he even made tents and worked with leather from time to time. This is what Paul did. But what he was really doing, no matter what the individual task was at any given moment, was he was serving the Lord. By the way, ministry to the church, whether you are a pastor like I am, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, whether you find yourself simply loving on one another. By the way, we are all serving the Lord this morning. And God's called every one of us to serve one another. And when we serve one another, whether we're doing nursery or whether we're taking a meal to someone who has had a death in the family, whether we're babysitting one afternoon on a Monday afternoon for a mom who needs some help, whether we're working uh, to... to you pick out the task. If you're at the gas station sharing with someone about the gospel, all those things, we are serving the Lord. And Paul says this, you know that I was a servant of the Lord. More than a pastor, more than a missionary, more than a church planter, more than a preacher, more than a teacher, more than a tent maker. Paul is a servant of the Lord. In fact, if you, if you wonder about that, read all of his letters. Read Philippians, Ephesians, and Galatians, and 1 Thessalonians, and read all those and see how Paul often introduces himself. He says, Paul, a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he describes himself. This is who Paul is. He says, I am a servant of the Lord, even in the midst, a humble one. Again, you can't encounter the risen God and be proud. He, he serves the Lord. And when we have a call to ministry, whether it's a vocational ministry or whether it be something to do whatever God leads us to do in a church, we are serving the Lord. Let me suggest this morning that so many of us as Christians struggle with our lives and being content and satisfied with God's work in our lives because we have missed this point. We find ourselves not serving the Lord, but serving ourselves. Or maybe even serving other people. Now, we're obviously, we're supposed to serve other people. But even when I serve other people, what I'm ultimately doing is I'm serving the Lord in the midst of that. What, what we are, all of us this morning, is we are servants of the Lord. We exist for Him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by Him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him or through Him, and for him. Your existence is not for your own means. Your existence is for Christ. We even have this in our tagline in the church together for Christ. And it's not just me or Alan or our deacons, it is all of us. We are all in the same boat. You and I are existing for Christ. We are his servants to serve him in humility. Paul even goes on to say, I do that with tears and with trials because of the plots against him. By the way, 
a life of service is sometimes hard. A life of service is sometimes difficult and might even result in tears. Now, why would, why would Paul describe it that way? Well, obviously there's the obvious. The Jews, pretty much wherever Paul had went, had rejected the gospel and had gone after him, sometimes even violently. And we know from Paul's other writings that their rejection pained him. It pained him, and it pained him just because maybe it hurt. <laughs> sometimes they threw rocks at him and they tried to physically hurt him. It hurt him, though, also because the very people he loved, his own Jewish people, had rejected that which he knew to be true. It hurt him because their rejection might be a barrier to others coming to recognize the gospel. It was a time of frustration. It was difficult. Sometimes serving the Lord is hard and results in tears. Sometimes it hurt him and caused tears because he knew, knowing his Lord, how worthy his Lord is of worship. How worthy his God is of glory. And it hurt him when the others would not, when the Jews would not honor that. It hurt him because he knew the best thing for them was to recognize the majesty and the glory and the gospel of God. And so it hurt him because they rejected him, the Lord. It hurt him because they were going to suffer as a result. His, pe his people would. This may sound strange, but one sign, one reality of serving Christ is, in fact, tears. Because gospel ministry does not harden our hearts, it does the exact opposite. It softens our hearts, even to those who might be our enemies in some sense. When we encounter the gospel, it cracks our heart open to who God is. And it helps us to see people as He sees them. Even those who are angry at us. Even those who may call us names and accuse us of things. Even those who we have taught and tried to reach and prayed for for years and they don't change. We see them as God sees them. The truth is to serve the Lord means tears in the sense because you're upset because you, you know they're missing out on who God is and because you are also hurt because they, you know God's worthy of their worship. But it also can, can cause pain in this sense because we hurt for them and we know that even though they've rejected the Lord, that uh, we hurt with them and for them. To love others, to serve the Lord is to shed some tears. You know, many of us, I've already mentioned it, many of us this weekend, I, even yesterday morning, I was early watching some of the accounts and the phone calls and the messages and all those things from people who were on those planes or who were in the towers, those, in some cases, the last minutes and hours before they were killed. And you're brought to tears when you hear a, a husband leave a message for his wife or for his kids, or for his mom and dad that he's not going to ever hear, or a son leave a, a message for his mother, or a wife leave a message for her children. These are tear-inducing things. We hurt 
and we even perhaps cry a little bit because we are sympathizing with the pain. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were brought to tears because someone did not know Christ? When was the last time we were brought to tears because of the tragedy of someone missing out on salvation? Paul, this is where he's at. Now you may think to yourself, really, Brett, this is the life you want to call us to? (laughs) Brett, you want to call us to be servants? To have pain and to difficulty, maybe even tears? Yeah. That's what I'm saying this morning. Because this, it's worth it. It's worth it. Why? First of all, because the gospel's true. Because God Himself is worth the temporary sorrow and tears and pain. Because it's true that Jesus saves for eternity. Because the gospel explains our world, it explains the problems, and it also explains the way out. It points us to God. When we serve God, we encounter not only the gospel and the risen God, but we see Him through His actions. We see even through opposition and difficulty. Paul talks about the Jews who had opposed Him. We've seen that in the last few weeks as we've gone through those last couple of chapters. And every time the people oppose the work of God, God has some way around it that magnifies the gospel, magnifies who He is, and leaves His people sitting in wonder at the majesty and the creativity and the power of God. It's worth it when you encounter the risen God. So yes, serving Him may in fact have some difficulty. It may in fact bring some, some hardship But it's worth it because in the process you will encounter the risen God. Because he's told us and made this promise to us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. I'll tell you, the comfort and the peace of God is worth it all. I don't call you to a life of service and even sometimes tears of difficulty lightly. I do it because I know it's worth it. The gospel is worth it. Salvation is worth it. Encountering God Himself is going to be face-to-face that day when He gives us a big hug, worth it. There will not be a moment in eternity when you really wish, I hadn't done that. I promise you, there will not be a moment in eternity come to come when you look back on your life today and go, man, this heaven thing just wasn't worth that. It's not going to happen. It's worth it. Look what else Paul does here. He says, in the midst of this this, this unchanging anchor of the gospel, he says, I served with humility and with tears. I also did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly, house to house, the gospel we have been talking about. Paul was not timid. How could he not be timid with his background? Because he had been forgiven and the shame had been removed, as I mentioned a little bit ago. He preached the gospel to all he came in contact with. Verse 23, he goes on to say, not only has has he been a servant, not only has he 
refused to shrink back from the gospel, but he is also spirit-bound, he says, to go to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about Paul and the spirit before. Last week we saw he was in Troas. Remember last week, Eutychus falls asleep in the window and falls out, the, falls out and dies? That was in the city of Troas. Troas is the city where Paul had that Macedonian call, where he had been trying to go to other parts of Asia, minor, to preach the gospel, and God said, no, go here, go across the, the sea to Macedonia, to Philippi. And so Paul knows what it is to be bound or compelled by the Spirit to go places. Now, he says this, he says, I don't know exactly what Jerusalem has for me, but I do know this, it's going to be hard. He says the Spirit has told him several different times that bonds and afflictions await him. And yet, Paul wants to go. Why does Paul want to go where it's going to be hard? Why does Paul want to go where he's likely to be arrested, where he's likely to be persecuted, where he's likely to be falsely accused and yelled at? Why does Paul want to go there? Anybody want to volunteer for that job? Anybody want to volunteer for the place or where you go, when you get there, you know that people are going to be angry at you all the time. They're going to mis, uh, mis, misquote you. They're going to accuse you falsely. They might even arrest you. Anybody want to sign up for that one? And yet Paul says, I'm going there because this is what the Spirit has for me. Again, how can he do that? Because the gospel's true. Because it's worth it. We know we never know what's going to happen, do we? Most of us don't wake up even when there's something bad going on, like Paul's looking at. We don't wake up knowing that today is going to bring this or bring that. We sometimes even have the illusion that we're somewhat in control of our lives. It's just not true. Whether you were in the towers that morning 20 years ago or whether you were in New Orleans two weeks ago, we don't have control of our lives. If anything, perhaps the last year and a half has burst that bubble. We are not in control. We are living on a day-to-day basis and needing to trust in our Lord. We were never in control. We sometimes think that our time on earth is our time. In fact, God has something He's wanted to do through us and for us in our lives on this earth. He says, I am bound by the Spirit. God has compelled me to do this. So I'm going. Verse 24, he says this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from Paul, or received from the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like, again, Philippians. Paul says, it's, it's, there's a selflessness. One of the hardest things for us as Christians to do, and I point myself first, is to be truly selfless. To serve God, not with my own agenda. Not to, 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 it's, it's difficult to come to God and say, I want to serve you, and then give Him a list of conditions by which we will serve Him. I had a friend of mine in the ministry many years ago. He was a fellow youth pastor at the time. And uh, he was considering uh, moving on from the church he was serving in. And he asked me a question. He says, uh, Mr. Brick, can I ask you a question? He goes, I've had a church contact me, and uh, uh, this, this young man was from southeast Texas. He, he was from the Beaumont area. He says he lived his entire life in the Beaumont area, and this church was, that was talking to him was not there. It was somewhere else. And he said, 
Is it possible to tell the Lord you'll serve Him in the ministry, but tell Him you won't go someplace? Because they say, I don't really want to go to where this place is at. And uh, having thought that in my head a couple times myself, um, Angela does give me a hard time about this. When Angela and I met, I was, I'd already been in the ministry for several years, and I told her, we were in Indiana at the time, and I said, you know, I know you're from Texas, but really the last thing I ever want to do is go back to Texas. I'd, I'd been a youth pastor in Texas for a couple of years. You want to know something about summers and youth camps in Texas? It's hot. I mean, really, really hot. I remember doing youth camps without air conditioning outside Waco, Texas. Oh, it's hot. <laughs> and I remember going, I don't want to go back there. A few years later, guess where we were? We were in Texas. We were in, in fact, we were at a place known for its mild climate. We were in Houston. Yeah, not, it's not humid or muggy in Houston at all. No, never. Very early on, when I was still in college, I had a church in West Texas. Out, it was about 40 miles outside of Amarillo. Called, called me and went, I remember going out there and, man, I was raised in the Ozarks. And you could see... They were 40 miles outside of Amarillo off Interstate 40, and you could see Amarillo from this town 40 miles away. Went, That's just not right. I said, no. I said, uh, I get that there's maybe some places you want to serve and not serve, but you don't get the chance that when you, when you tell the Lord you're going to serve him, you don't really get a chance to tell him the conditions by which you'll serve. You just serve. Now, we have a little fun with that, but the reality is for many of us, without perhaps even realizing it sometimes, we've told God that we'll serve Him, but only under these conditions. Only if I get to do this, or only if I don't have to do that. Only if it's comfortable. Only if I make this much money. Only if I get to live here. Paul, as he is meeting with these men from Ephesus, he says, you know, you know the pain you know the difficulty. You know the selflessness, the spirit-boundedness with which I have served. It's anchored in the God of, God of the gospel. So whether it's 9-11, whether it's COVID, whether it's neither, it's just, it's just something else. The anchor to our lives this morning, the thing that doesn't change, is God's gospel. And the call He has on us to not only repent and have faith, but the call to serve that results. And that's just one that I would draw your attention to. Would you encounter the risen Christ this morning? Would you find yourself drawn to Him above all else?